0: So this, this is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and I had an entirely different sermon in mind for this point, but we yield to the directing hand of the great captain of our souls. And so we're going to be looking at what we would have talked about three weeks ago, which is Zechariah's song. Just a second here, my... My uh, The cord here is acting up. Okay, hopefully that cures it. All right. Um, I want to invite each of you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 1, verse 57 through 80. As we hear of the birth of John the Baptist... And what it means about the coming Christ. Verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. And she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to him, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of our God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Before we begin, Tim, would you please turn on this mic right here? There's something wrong with this cord. It's 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 pulling. It's going to come off any minute. Sorry about that, folks. Alright, so we began this series by making note of the fact that song is an integral part of our humanity. The singing of songs is something very spiritual, very innately connected to our souls that God has given us. We are, as humans, we, we are the merger, the, the, the hypostatic union of a material and an immaterial part. You are not just your body. You are not just organic processes encased in flesh. You have an immaterial part that makes you human. And song resonates with our soul in a way that is very difficult to explain. For thousands of years, people have tried to explain the mysterious the way we respond to music and the effect that music has on us. I, I think it was Plato or was it Aristotle who said that, that music causes our soul to like vibrate or something. Wasn't, who was that? Plato. Long time ago. People everywhere understand that there's something mysteriously spiritual about music. And so we ought not be afraid of it. In fact, in Scripture, music plays a huge part. People respond to the glories and the tragedies of life in song. They don't just write songs to make them happy. They understand that music is an outlet for grief. And so there's lament, lament, There's dirge in scripture because a lot of life gets messy. Life is not all sunshine and roses. And so they had the honesty to acknowledge it and process it out in song. But yet at the same time, whenever God steps onto the scene and does something wondrous for his people... How do they respond? They didn't respond by standing and delivering a sermon. They responded in song. And so we began the Advent season with a prelude of sorts. We looked at the Song of Moses, which occurred right after the passing through the Red Sea. And there's bodies floating in the water. There's... Horses and, and people and clothing and everything that was made of wood not weighed down by metal. It's washing up. It's a disaster scene. Have you ever seen the immediate after effect of a flood? It's, it's, it's horrible. But yeah, what did that represent? That Egyptian army was coming to slaughter them down to the last person. And God stepped in and made a way and delivered his people. And never again, it's hundreds of years before Egypt is again a threat to the people of Israel. And so right there on the banks of the Red Sea, they rejoice and they praise God for what he has done to save. And now, with the prophetic tradition, most of the prophets wrote poetry, which means... They were songs. They didn't just write it. They weren't like Lord Byron. Okay? They would sing these. Even to this day, if you go to a synagogue or to an Eastern Orthodox or to a, even sometimes a Roman Catholic, they're chanting, they're singing this. Why? Because, as we have learned, the story of redemption, redemptive history, is not a drama. It's a musical. There's a lot of songs. And that's beautiful. So I ask you, do you despise music? I've met people who don't like it, who don't like the fact that we come to church and sing. And I want to challenge you. Music is a huge part of God's word. God reveals himself to us in song. The Bible commands us to teach one another with song. So I challenge you. Grow in your love of music, okay? Now, three weeks ago, we looked at Mary's song, which are in verses 46 to 55 of this same chapter. This song, known as the Magnificat, uh, is, is a beautiful song of praise for what God has done for her, how he's looked on his people and brought forth this great promise and she is humbled and overjoyed that she has such a precious place to play in the redemptive musical. She will be the mother of the Messiah. What a wondrous, wondrous thing. Now, today, we're looking at Zechariah's song. This is the second song that gets sung surrounding the coming of the savior and really these verses that we read here when we started at verse 57 we're really at the conclusion of a story that began back in verse 5 if you've read luke chapter 1 you know that it begins in luke chapter 1 verse 5 now there was and it tells the story of this old man and he is a priest And the way the priests would work back then, they they weren't pastors like like I am or something. Uh, They had a small army of priests in Israel. And each of these groupings of priests would take their turns going to Jerusalem to do their priestly service in the temple. And so his, his order of priests is there taking their turn. And he's an old man at this point, and it points out that he and his wife are righteous, they're blameless, so this is a pious couple, but unfortunately they have been childless thus far. And remember that in the ancient world, throughout most of human history actually, social security was your children. There was nothing to provide for you when you got aged or infirm except for children. And there was a, so there was a great need to have a child who could care for you when you got too old or too broke to provide for yourself. And they had none. And so things always look ominous for people when they are childless. But he's in there, and he draws, he draws the, the short straw, except this is a great privilege, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go into the holy place to burn incense. And there, of course, Gabriel shows up and meets with him. And he says, guess what? You're going to go home, and you're going to conceive. Your wife's going to conceive, and, and you're going to call his name John, and he's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. Now, his name John means God is gracious. Now, if this is a little side note. If you look throughout most of the... Old Testament prophets, most of the time, their name, there's a correlation between their meaning of their name and their message. Now, God is gracious, which is what John means, is a remarkable testimony about God, considering what is the message of John. Repent. That's, his, that's a one-word summary of his message. Repent. It's one thing to be told to repent because you're going to get killed otherwise. It's another thing to be told to repent because God is gracious and he will forgive you if you repent. So the command to repent is sort of predicated upon the fact that God is gracious. And this truth is revealed even in the name that, he is, that Zechariah is instructed to give this forthcoming child and then remarkably in verse 18 so the angel stands there and tells them all this he tells them word what the name how it's going to happen and what does Zechariah say in verse 18 how how do I know this is true like and, and Gabriel's response I'm Gabriel and I stand in the presence of the Lord in other words what How often do angels show up and talk to you? You know? (laughs) What on earth? So Zechariah's statement is one of disbelief. His statement is a little different than what Mary says when she's told that she's going to bear a child. She goes, how is this to be since I'm a a virgin? Hers is is a question of confusion. Like, you know, I'm only a young teenager, but I understand how this works, and I'm young, and I'm a virgin, and I'm not married, so how how am I going to bear a child? Well, in this case, he just doesn't really believe. And so the angel says, you didn't believe me, so you're going to be mute from this day until the child is born. hmm now, fast forward to verse 62 here, and it says that the people want to name the child after Zechariah, and, and Elizabeth says, no, 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 we got to name him John. And they're like, uh, that's not how it works here. How it works here is you, you name the kid after one of your ancestors. That's how you do it. And there's no one named John on your family line, so... This doesn't sound right. And so they look to, they make, it says they make signs to Zechariah. Now that's interesting. They make signs to him. Does that mean he was deaf too? Does that mean that when the angel told him you will be silent, that you will be in silence so he could neither speak nor hear? But they make signs to him and get his attention and he jots on Aboard, that that they will name him John and as soon as he does that his tongue is loosed and he's able to praise God and everybody around there goes this isn't how it normally works what on earth and that's why everyone's like what kind of child will this be and then the idea is that verse 67 takes place right there so Immediately, Zechariah's tongue is loosed. And this song shows that Zechariah had spent the nine months before not just stewing that he was struck mute and possibly deaf. He existed in silence, but in the quiet of his own thoughts and in his own heart, God was using this discipline as a means of grace. And so Zechariah comes out the other end of this trial, being mute and likely deaf for nine months. And the first words out of his mouth are a song of praise for what God has done and is doing. This song is a song not of praise for what God has done for him personally, The way Mary's song is and the way Simeon's song is, this song is a a testimony of praise to God's saving work in history. So we realize that Zechariah had done some reflection on these nine months. And he's reflecting on the fact that God has made a promise, which is predicated upon God having a purpose which results in God making provision. So that whole long introduction gets us to now where we're going to have three points. Some of you love three points, and I don't always do three points. But this sermon, in this text, we see God's promise, God's purpose, and God's provision. First, let's look at God's promise. Zechariah He's a priest, and he's had nine months of silence to think. And so in his song, he makes reference to the three great covenants that God has made with his people. He references David in verse 69, he references the mercy promised to the fathers. That's a reference to Sinai in verse 72. And then, of course, he makes reference to Abraham. In 73. Okay, so God's covenant promises. Thousands of years of covenant promises on the line, he recalls it. And he understands that God's promise is the thing that has provided hope and consolation for the people of God despite all the subsequent and ensuing trials and difficulties. The people are amazed that they're going to name the kid John, They're, they're amazed that he writes it down, and then immediately he's able to speak, in large part because then, like now, that doesn't happen. You read the Bible, and you think that everyone is just walking around experiencing and seeing miracles. It had been hundreds of years since a prophet had shown up in Israel. Hundreds of years, twice as, almost twice as long as the U.S. is old. In 63 B.C., Rome invaded. And that little, there was a little blip of history after all the Greeks and everything had been purged out where, where, the, where the Israelites, the Hebrews, had their own nation state again. And Rome steamrolled it. And they've been under Roman occupation since 63 B.C. Paying taxes to a government that just viewed them as as just nothing. And God's hope, or the hope that they had in God's promise, even though all hope seems to have failed, he remembers it and he recalls it. And he's able to bring it to mind and praise God for his consistent stream of steady promise. Abraham, Israel, Abraham, David, Israel, Abraham. He goes further and further back in time to recall that this has been a plan from the beginning. When God made a promise, it wasn't just some happen chance thing, there's been a steady plan backing up. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Here we are, 2,000 years. We're about 2,000 years from the, re- from, from the crucifixion of Jesus. Just a few years shy. It's easy to think that God's maybe tuned out. That he's busy watching the other channel. That he's preoccupied with heavenly drama and he's forgotten about us or something. His promise his covenant promise, by which he has bound himself to us, is always on his mind. You are always before his eyes. He has not forgotten you, nor has he forsaken you. But we are called, just as God's people have always been called, to exercise faith, persevering faith, in the face Of not seeing the fruit. This is the whole point of Romans chapter 11. All these great saints that have gone before. Verse 39 of Hebrews 11 says that they all, all, all died without seeing that which was promised. Does that mean that they didn't get it? Of course not. You see, the problem that they had to persevere through is the problem that we have to persevere through. And that is this. We are so tempted to think that this life is all there is. So once my brain waves stop flapping, and once my heartbeat starts beating, stops beating, and once I'm cold and dead, that there's no more Ben. So if God has got a promise for me, for him to be faithful in delivering it to me, it must occur before my heart stops beating. That is the challenge that we have to resist believing. Your body, like I said at the beginning, is not just organic matter. You are not just a body. You are spirit And flesh. Your body may die, but that is not the end of you. You have an immortal soul. You will never cease having consciousness because you live forever. And in the final day, your body will be raised. And it will either be this glorious body built to withstand the the unmitigated, full-bore glory of God. Or it will be a horrendous body designed to withstand the eternal fire and torments of hell. But this body is not the end point. So God is faithful. And he has been faithful to his people, even though Abraham died without seeing the promise, even though Moses died without seeing the promise, even though David died without seeing the prophet, even though the prophets died without seeing the promise. God was still faithful, and they are still in his care. When Jesus says that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that means he's the God of the living, Jacob Isaac and Abraham still live in his presence. And so the promises that God has made get fulfilled. You you may not have an experience of peace on earth while you live right now, but the day is coming. Your body will be raised and everything that God has promised will, in fact, be given. And so Zechariah praises God for this. That death, foreign invaders, none of it, the the, the gross apostasy of the majority of the people, none of that has, has dislodged or dissuaded God from keeping his promise. He is faithful. So in the midst of of your shattered dreams and your frustrations. Whether they're big life narratives that you're just kind of frustrated about or maybe it's just the very local, immediate, I'm frustrated because COVID and all the restrictions have made my Christmas celebrations not possible. Whatever it is. Hold on. Hope. Persevere in faith knowing that God has not abandoned you, and you will get every good thing. But second, God's promise is predicated upon his purpose. Now what is God's purpose here? Well, God's purpose has been revealed singularly since the fall. And that is to see his image restored. To see a humanity in place to be his true image A people after God's likeness and heart to do what Adam did not do to be what Adam rejected. A renewed humanity. Now that theme runs consistent throughout the Old Testament. You see it regularly, which is why the people of God are consistently referred to by God as a people called out for my own possession They're a people for himself that he's laying claim to so they can be his proper deputies in the world. And we see it here. After all the praise, after all the wondrous acts of redemption that God is going to do that Zechariah talks about, he says in verse 74 and 75, he's doing all of this, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, we might serve him... Without fear, in holiness and in righteousness, all our days. There's a reason why Hebrews 2 8 and 9 talks about God's grace saving us by faith and not from works that no one can boast. But then verse 10 talks about all the good works that God created us to do. We were made to be God's righteous ambassadors on the earth. That's his purpose. He is redeeming a people to reflect his glory throughout the earth. And so Zechariah praises God for three things. And what's interesting here is the birth of Jesus is still about three months away. But the, the, he learned a lesson from that angel. The angel shows up and tells him what will be, and he scratches his head. How do I know this is true? Well, he's learned a little bit. So now he understands that the birth of his son John is itself testimony to the veracity, the truthfulness of what the angel said about the coming Messiah who will come right after. And so he speaks, Zechariah does, in the past tense. Which is, as we saw in, in, in uh, Esther and in other places, is the language you use to convey certainty. You speak of a future thing as having happened already to convey the certainty of it. And what does he say? That the Lord has visited his people. That's a a concept filled with Old Testament import. Whenever God visits, it's God showing up to accomplish something. And so, God has redeemed his people. Now, redemption is still 33 years to come because redemption isn't accomplished until Jesus dies, right? Well, he speaks with the certainty because God has given him the assurance that it will happen. So God has visited his people. He's shown up to to do something about their predicament. He has redeemed his people and then he has raised up a horn of salvation for us from the house of David. That horn of salvation from the house of David, well, that horn of salvation refers to a king And it refers to the horns of a bull, of a wild ox, a wildebeest in Africa that you don't want to be around. They gore, they charge, it's a sign of strength. It's a sign that there's a king that has been raised up who will defend and protect the people from all their enemies. Now here's what Zechariah may or may not have known. But we know it. He means every enemy that threatens our peace and the steadfastness of our relationship with God. So there are the physical threats to our peace and security, but there's also the spiritual forces and sin itself that serve as our greatest enemies. So this purpose Redeeming a people for God's use as his emissaries. A people in which God can delight. A people who will delight in God. That's God's purpose. And so he's made a provision, which is point three. This whole song, 68 to 80. What is that, 12 verses, 13 verses? Two of them are about John. So... We think that a new doting father would say the whole thing about his son but he has it in perspective that his son is a part to play in this great program but this program is cosmic in scope and that's the amazing thing and so God has provided John now isn't it interesting that God provides a messenger to prepare the way why does the way need to be prepared I mean why doesn't Why doesn't God just send Jesus and skip John? Well, we need to be prepared. The Bible says in Galatians 4 that in the fullness of time God sent forth his son. That means the world had to be prepared. There had to be conditions just right. And the people had grown so complacent in their spirituality and the, the conservatives had had so, had had so become enmeshed in cultural traditionalism as a way of resisting the, the Hellenistic influence of the Romans that what they thought of as being seriously committed to the Lord was simply being seriously committed to a Jewish ethnic identity. The, the peoples were, were upside down in terms of their spiritual walk. They needed someone to come. And tell them to repent of their sins. To highlight the fact that they needed forgiveness. So that some would be ready then to hear the message of the one who would offer the forgiveness. Jesus. So John the Baptist's ministry was indispensable. In preparing people to receive a message of mercy. And then of course... Zechariah praises the Lord for the coming Messiah, Jesus. And he refers to Jesus by the the one who who, who reveals light and will shine light upon those who are existing in the shadow of death. And who is Jesus by his own self-acclamation? He is the light of the world. His coming reveals God's character and illumines God's mercy and obliterates the fear and shadow of despair. But he's also that horn of salvation that is raised up in Zechariah's song. He is our great king who has overcome all the forces of hell, and he is subduing everything in this created order for the purpose of the salvation of his people. And he fights against the sin that remains in you and in me. Because he is a great Lord. And he will let nothing impede our relationship, our fellowship that we enjoy with him. And so Zechariah praises God for this cosmic scale scope of redemptive history. God has promised and he's proven faithful. God has purposed and he's proven truthful and he has made a provision because he is efficient and sufficient to accomplish his purpose. So as we go forth into Christmas week, you celebrate the fact that all this grand sweeping movement of history has been aimed singularly at the glory of the sun and the salvation of his people and it came upon a midnight clear where in the middle of nowhere the light of the world burst into darkness shattering and causing the fear and, and, and paralysis of the devil uh, uh, caused by the devil to run brothers and sisters Christmas should be joyous to you because it's the trumpet blast that the cavalry is here. Let's pray.